Let me, let me pray for us as we get started again. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Hosea. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. And I pray that we would hear you speak to us uh, today as we finish off our series in Hosea. For your glory. Amen. So yes, this is uh, the last of our series in Hosea. Everyone say, oh. Um, I personally have really enjoyed uh, going through the book. Books of the Bible like Hosea can sometimes feel a little bit kind of distant or uh, irrelevant to us, can't they? What is the story of a nation, the nation of Israel, thousands of years ago got to do with me? What What relevance is it to me that they were disobeying God, that they were chasing other gods, that they were turning their back on him? What does it matter to me that God was warning these people from thousands of years ago, what's that got to do with me in Hartlepool in 2023? That's a danger with this kind of book. But I don't think it's a danger that's been realized in this series. As we've looked through this ancient book, I hope, like me, you've found that God has been speaking to you today in the lives that you're living. I hope you've been challenged, but that you've also been built up as we've seen shafts of gospel light shine through amongst all those messages of, of, and, and warnings of judgment. Hosea is a book in uh, three sections. Cast your mind back a couple of months ago when we started this series um, and we looked at chapters one to three. That was section one. And in section one, God gave a message to his people through a lived out display. Do you remember that? Hosea, the prophet, was asked to marry a prostitute called Gomer and then to name his children the the bizarre names of um, not my people and not loved. And the point was clear. God is like Hosea who has promised himself to his people Israel, but the people have been like Gomer, the wife. They've prostituted themselves. They've turned away from the God who loves them and and who's committed to them, and they've chased after other gods, after other kings. And the result was that God would no longer call them his people. But section one ended with a message of hope. It wouldn't always be like this. So that was section one, this kind of real life, lived out illustration of God's message to his people. And then we saw saw section two, which was chapters four to 11. And in this section, instead of that lived out message, this section was a series of kind of proclamations, sermons, talks uh, from Hosea, where Hosea spelt out for the people a series of charges that God had against them, Um, He exposed their sin. He exposed the consequences of that sin. And again, he did that, always kind of exploring this idea of um, prostitution, a spirit of prostitution he talked about a lot. That was section two. Uh, um, Section one, that real life illustration. Uh, Section two, those prophetic messages about their prostitution. And now we come to section three, which is what we're going to look at in this last uh, sermon today. Chapters 12 to 14 of Hosea. In section 3, Hosea is once again trying to get this message through to the people. He's trying one more time to get them to to recognize their sin and the consequence of their sin, the judgment that they're going to face. And I have to admit that when I um, came to preparing this talk and I realized that we were going back there again... (laughs) I had a little bit of a sinking feeling. I was a little bit kind of dreading preparing this talk. 
It's been a hard-hitting series, hasn't it, in Hosea? Lots of exposure of our sin. Lots of warnings of judgment. Could I really face bringing more of the same of that to us today? Ben and Michael and um, Ellie and Andy have done a really brilliant job of bringing to us what God is saying. Surely we've had enough of it now. Surely we should move on to a different book of the Bible. But then, as I was thinking that, I got thinking back to what we've heard over the series. And I realised that much of what's been said I've already forgotten. Can you remember what was said last week, the week before, four weeks ago? And even if you can, how much has it impacted your life? As I pondered this, I realised that there have been ways that um, I've been challenged over the course of this series that actually I've done nothing or very little about. I wonder if you could say the same for yourself. And so I realised that actually, maybe we do need to hear these messages again. Maybe God knew what he was doing when he gave this third section, this, this additional chance for the people to hear and for us to hear uh, in Hartlepool today. So let's dig in to this third section. Um, sections one and two, as I said, explore this idea of, a, of spiritual prostitution. Israel had been adulterous, promiscuous. They chased after other things instead of God. That was sections one and two. But in section three, Hosea kind of changes tack a little bit. He comes at the problem that the, of the people um, from, a, a, from a slightly different angle. And in this section, Hosea um, takes Israel back to the story of one of their forefathers. And what he does is he draws the parallel between the story of that forefather and their story. The focus of section three is on uh, their forefather, Jacob, who lived a thousand years before the time of Hosea. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of trace the story of Jacob through these chapters. And as we do so, we'll see the parallels between his story and the story of God's people then. And then hopefully we'll see some parallels with our lives too. Does that make sense? Hopefully so. So let's, let's get stuck in. So um, let's start at the beginning of Jacob's story. Look with me at Hosea chapter 12, verse 2. Um, it's in, on page 909 of the church Bibles, if you've got those in front of you. So Hosea chapter 12, verse 2. Here's what it says. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. So that's where it starts. You might remember the story of Jacob. Um, Jacob was... Uh, Abraham's grandson. And that was hugely significant. You see, Abraham had been given some promises from God. He promised that his descendants would form a great nation. He promised that they would be given a land of their own. He promised that they would be blessed by God and that they would be a blessing to the people around them. Huge promises um, were attached to Abraham and to Abraham's family. And so to be a descendant of Abraham was to inherit these big promises. Now, in those days, normally kind of rights and, and promises were passed down the male line. The firstborn son would be the one who would inherit all the rights and the privileges. Abraham's firstborn son was Isaac, so he inherited the promises. But then, when Isaac's wife, Rebecca, got pregnant... Her first pregnancy was twins, 
two boys. There was seconds in it. But Esau was the one born first. He was going to be the heir to the promises. But his little brother, Jacob, wasn't happy about that. He was having none of it. Right from that moment, right from the very beginning, he wasn't happy with the situation with just missing out on being the firstborn. Did you see what it said in verse 3? In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. You can read that story back in Genesis chapter 25. And actually what happened was that when uh, Jacob was being born, he, um, he held on to Esau's heel who came out just before him. He was fighting to be the firstborn. He wanted the promises. And that was just a foreshadow of what was to come in their lives. And so the boys were born and they were given names. Now, yesterday, um, my family, we collected uh, some hens. We got some hens for the first time. We've been kind of preparing for it the last few weeks. Uh, we decided about three weeks ago that we were going to get three hens, one for each of our three children. Uh, and then uh, bit after that, we decided we were going to get five hens, one for each of us in the family. And then we thought we'd get six hens, just in case one died. We ended up getting seven hens. Um, and we've got them home, and, and we're now trying to kind of think of names for all these hens. And we've thought of different themes for the names we thought we could go with kind of Shakespearean women so uh, Desdemona Lady Macbeth and so on but the kids weren't really up for that when we thought we were having five we thought we'd go for Spice Girls so we'd have a posh a baby a scary uh, but again the kids who are the Spice Girls to them um, anyway we've decided on Harry Potter names so we've not got them all yet we've got a Hermione we've got a Myrtle uh, so watch this space you can you can find them out as we go um, but we just picked the names based on kind of what was fun, what we liked the sound of, we thought we'd go for a theme, but there wasn't any significance really to the names that we picked for our chickens. But that was not true back in biblical times. When they picked names, those names were really significant. They had a meaning. And do you know what Jacob's name meant? Jacob's name meant deceiver. And Jacob lived up to his name. As uh, Jacob and Esau were reaching adulthood, Jacob tricked his brother and his father Isaac so that he could have that birthright that was intended for Esau, so that he could have the blessing that belonged to Esau. Jacob deceived them both. He leapfrogged Esau and he stole all the rights that Esau had. And that pattern of deceit was one that followed him throughout his life. Through uh, cunning and deceit, eventually he became very rich. But it was at the expense of his um, integrity and of his obedience to God. Now, why was Hosea reminding the people about Jacob, the deceiver? Hosea wants the people to see that their story is following the pattern of Jacob's story. Let's just hone in on a, a few examples from these chapters. So at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, there's a couple of verses there that are really significant because they kind of sum up the argument that's coming in the rest of these chapters. Let me just read part of that. Look down with me at chapter 11, verse 12. Chapter 11, verse 12. Ephraim, now that is um, just another word that is sometimes used for Israel, for God's people. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. Israel with deceit. Hear that word? Deceit. 
when Hosea picks a word to summarize the sin of the people of Israel, that's the word he uses. They are deceivers, just like Jacob the deceiver. That's what his name meant, remember. They're just like their forefather Jacob. And their deceit is pointed straight at God. Did you notice that in the verse? It said, um, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. That's God speaking. Israel with deceit. Israel um, are deceitful, just like Jacob. And how have they been deceitful? Let's just pull out a few ways that we see it. Look at the end of um, verse 1 of chapter 12. It says this. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. Now, what you need to know there is that Israel and, sorry, Assyria and Egypt were the two big rival superpowers of the day. Israel were hedging their bets. They were trying to cozy up with both of these rival superpowers to watch their own backs. The problem was that they'd forgotten that they had a God who had once outdone the Pharaoh of Egypt. They had a God that they could trust for their protection. But instead of trusting him, using cunning and deceit by causing up with both of these superpowers, they went behind God's back and made sneaky political arrangements to protect themselves. Whoever would win, they'd be all right. They'd hedge their bets. And ironically, it would be one of these two nations, Assyria, who would eventually be the ones who would take Israel captive. Their plan didn't work. But they'd use deceit um, to try to achieve their plan. Now, that might sound quite removed <laughs> from our lives. I, mean, I don't know if many of us are causing up with Russia and America at the same time to protect ourselves or whatever. Um, it sounds removed from our lives, but I'm not so sure it is. You see, I see people doing this in their relationships all of the time. You're with a friend, and they're slagging off another friend that you have, a mutual friend. They're either explicitly doing that, or just kind of subtly pointing out their failings, their weaknesses, in a way that they would never do to their face. And, and you're with them, and rather than stand up to what they're doing... Rather than speaking up for your other friend, you join in. Or you just don't say anything. Or maybe you're the one who instigates it. You don't want to lose face with this friend. You don't want to cause any issues uh, uh, by standing up to them, uh, speaking against this other friend. But then in the next breath, you're with this other friend who has been talked about, and you cozy up to them. Maybe even slag off that other friend with them. You act as though none of that stuff's been said. You're willing to forsake your integrity, forsake your obedience to God by being two-faced. You, you head your bets with both people in order to protect, to protect yourself, to not lose face with either. That's one example of the deceit of Israel. Let's just look at another one. Chapter 12, verse 7. It says this. The merchants use dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I have become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. So, Mrs. Goldberg uh, goes up to the shop to buy a kilogram of flour. The shopkeeper makes a song and dance about getting out the scales and putting the one kilogram on one side and very carefully measuring out the flour on the other side. 
to give precisely a kilogram. Mrs. Goldberg hands over the money, off she goes with her kilogram of flour. What she doesn't realise is that she hasn't actually quite got a kilogram of flour. The shopkeeper had fiddled with his scales, he's deceiving his customers, ripping them off bit by bit and getting rich off the back of it, even as his customers get poorer. That's what's going on in Israel. And that, if you know the story of Jacob, has Jacob written all over it. Jacob deceived his uncle Laban to get the best sheep to make himself rich. Their deceit is in the pattern of their forefather Jacob. Israel are just like them. Through deception, they've made themselves rich. And they're actually proud of it, it says. In verse 8, that they're boasting about it. They brag about it. And they think that that wealth that they've accumulated can protect them from everything. Let me just read verse 8. It says this. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I have become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. They think that their wealth uh, places them above the law. They think that their wealth makes them untouchable. They even think that they can deceive God with it that he won't see beyond it to their sin. And as we hear this, I wonder how close to the bone it might be for some of us. Maybe, like these people, you've fiddled the books to leave yourself with a bit more cash, not declared some income that you really should have declared, claimed expenses that weren't really legit. Or maybe you use someone else's Netflix account who doesn't live in the same household as you, Maybe you've downloaded music or films illegally to avoid having to pay for them. Maybe you've failed to to pay a tradesman a fair price, getting out of it through a technicality. Or or maybe you've sold something, a a car or, or, or something on Facebook Marketplace, knowing that actually there's a problem with it that the buyer won't be immediately aware of. Maybe you've exploited a loophole in a shop, a mislabeled price, an offer that wasn't really intended as you've taken it in order to pay less than this thing is worth. Many of these things we kind of reason with ourselves that they're okay. We make excuses for them. We justify them. But really, all we're doing is what Israel and Jacob before them were doing. Using deception to hold on to a bit more cash for ourselves at the expense of others. We do it, and then, like Israel, we feel more secure because we have more money in our pockets. We feel we need God a bit less. And because often these things are so widespread and common, we maybe even think God doesn't really see these things. He doesn't really care about these minor things, does he? But he really does care about our deceit. We see Israel's deception um, in in lots of other places in these passages. We haven't got time to go into the detail of them. It's things that we've explored through this series. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen. In in chapter 13, verse 2, we see their deceit in chasing after other gods. In chapter 13, verse 9 to 11, we see how they pursued other kings instead of God. The verdict is clear. Israel are guilty of deceit, just like their forefather Jacob, and just like us. We are guilty too. 
Now let's step back into the story of Jacob for a moment to see what the consequence of that deceit is. You see, we heard earlier how Jacob tricked his brother and his dad uh, in order to take that firstborn birthright. Do you remember that? Um, let's see what happened next. Look with me um, at Hosea chapter 12, verse 12. Here's what happened next. Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Israel served to get a wife and to pay for her he tended sheep. Now the verse uh, starts there with the words, Jacob fled. The reason that um, Jacob was able to deceive his brother Esau to win that birthright was because of Esau's impulsive personality. What actually happened in that moment was this. Esau had been out. He'd been hard at work in the field. And he'd come back from that work famished. He was starving. And Jacob saw his opportunity. He knew his brother. He knew how impulsive he could be. And so Jacob said to Esau, he said, I'll give you some food if you give me your birthright. Now Esau was young. He, he, what good is a birthright to him? It's all kind of stuff in the future, not worth thinking about now, but right now he was hungry. So in his impulsive nature, he agreed to the trade. He gave away his birthright and he took the food. And then later on, he tricked his father into giving him Esau's blessing as well. And when Jacob did this, Esau was rightly outraged. When he kind of came to realize what had happened, he vowed to himself, Esau vowed to himself, that when his father passed away, he would kill his brother Jacob. And Jacob realized that his deception was coming home to roost. He knew that his impulsive brother might well come through with what he's threatened there. He had only one option. He had to flee. And that's what um, verse 12 of chapter 12 of Hosea is referring to. Jacob fled, and he ended up living in a foreign land. And circumstances aligned in that foreign land that he effectively found himself as a slave there for 20 years. The consequence of Jacob's deceit was that he became a slave in a foreign land. And now Hosea wants the Israelites to see that their deceit is going to lead them down the very same path. Their deceit is going to lead to them becoming slaves in a foreign land. Chapter 13 outlines the judgment that is coming to Israel because of their persistent sin and deceit. We've seen some of that deceit already, but in verse 2 of chapter 13, we see that their idol worship has now got to the point where they are sacrificing humans on the altars of their idols. Just find that. Have I given the wrong verse? What did I say? Verse 2 of chapter 13. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. Their sin is ripe for judgment. And given what they're doing, the judgment that comes is entirely fair and proportionate. We're not going to read all of chapter 13, but just look with me at some of the verses towards the end from verse 15. 
just from the top of the second column there on page 910, it says this. An east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in from the desert. His spring will fail and his well dry up. His storehouse will be plundered, all of its treasures, of all of its treasures. The people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. Now those are really sobering words to read, aren't they? But when the Assyrians would come, this is what would happen. It was, they were a brutal nation. This is what the Assyrians did. Those were the truths of warfare in those days. Israel was to be invaded by Assyria. They would plunder the land and the people would be carried off to be slaves in a foreign land. The deceit of Israel would lead to the very same consequence for them as what happened to Jacob. They would be slaves in a foreign land. And as we hear that, and as we see the sin and deceit in our own lives, in our own hearts, we need to sit up and we need to pay attention to the warnings that we're hearing in Hosea. God is a, a just, a perfect, a holy God. He cannot stand by and let sin go unpunished. He would not be good if he did. There has to be consequences. But that means that you and I must face up to the reality of the judgment that we deserve too. All of us, without exception, deserve the just judgment of God but there is hope you see Jacob's story didn't end in slavery in a foreign land God called him out of that land and he restored him to relationship with himself and to the land that he was promised look with me back at verse 3 of chapter 12 again Here's what it says about Jacob's story. In the womb, he, that's Jacob, grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. After 20 years in a foreign land, Jacob had used his deception and his swindling to make himself exceedingly rich at the expense of his uncle Laban, who had welcomed him. People started to talk, and it got to a point where Laban became increasingly unhappy with Jacob. He'd had enough of Jacob's deceit. And at that point of Jacob's story, God graciously intervened. He said to Jacob, Go back to the land where you came from. I will be with you. Now old habits die hard. So, and so Jacob came out with another round of deceit to get away um, in the way that he left Laban. But he did leave. Jacob took his family, his wealth, and he set off back to his homeland. And on his way home, Jacob saw his brother Esau with a small army coming out to meet him. Oh no, Jacob thought. He, he remembered why he'd fled in the first place and he became really fearful. He thought that Esau was finally about to go through with what he'd threatened all those years before that. He was going to kill him for stealing the birthright. Jacob cried out to God. He said, I am unworthy of your kindness, but please save me. 
So what Jacob did was he, he did some things to try ca- to kind of sweeten his brother Esau, and then he went to bed ready to face Esau the next day, ready to meet his fate. But that night, God appeared to him as a man. Jacob spent the night wrestling with God, pleading with God to bless him. And God blessed him that night. That night, Jacob's name was changed. Do you remember what his name meant? His name meant deceiver. But God changed his name to Israel, which means he struggles with God. Jacob had come to a point where his sin had mounted up, where his deceit was coming home to roost, where it was all about to potentially culminate in his death. And in that moment, Jacob came to God. He pleaded with God for restoration. He wrestled with God to be blessed. He wept and he begged for God's favor. And God granted it to him. Not because Jacob deserved it, Far from it. He deserved the death that was coming to him. But God instead spared him that death and showed him his favor. Hosea is saying this to Israel. He's saying that can be your story too. You too can be restored to God. You too, like Jacob, can be forgiven. Just look with me again at chapter 12. Let me just read from verse 3 again to just hear that story of Jacob again. Chapter 12, verse 3. In the womb, Jacob grasped his brother's heel as a man he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. And now listen to this, what Hosea says to the people. But you must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. And he picks up that call in verse 1 of chapter 14. Turn with, that. Turn with me to that. Verse 1 of chapter 14, just over the page. He says this, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what, his own hands, to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. Return to the Lord. That's the call that Hosea makes to Israel. Come back to him. And that might be the call that we need to hear this afternoon too. As you look at your life, as your heart has been exposed maybe this afternoon, maybe throughout this series in Hosea, it may be that you've noticed areas in your life where you've wandered from God where you've been living, uh, worshipping things other than him, where you've been living for other kings. It may be that you see deceit towards God in your life. That might be uh, just in small ways. Or for some of us, it might be a more significant kind of drifting away from God that's been going on for some time. You've been wandering further and further from him. Like Jacob and like Israel you realize that though you're a follower of God by name, your life is now saying something quite different. You're deceiving him. Or it might be that you're someone here who's never known God, never been in relationship with him, 
But right now, you're realizing just what that means. What the consequences of that are. What you're missing out on. And if any of that's you, Hosea's call is for you to return to the Lord your God. You can do it with the words of uh, chapter 14, verse 2. Forgive all my sins and receive me graciously. You can say that to God right now in your heart. But let me just say one thing for a moment. Let's not simply utter empty words to God and then kind of get back on with our lives as though nothing's happened. God wants our return to him to lead to change. In, verse, in chapter 14, verse 2, they ask for forgiveness, and they ask for it in order to change their ways. Let me just read again from what was said. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We, we will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made, for in you the fatherless find compassion. Do you see that their returning to God uh, was going to lead to the fruit of their lips, that what they were saying would be lived out in their lives. They are turning their backs on the very things that they've been deceiving God with. The two-faced deception of seeking security through political allegiance is gone. They say, Assyria cannot save us. Idolatry is gone. They say, we will never say our gods to what our own hands have made. Coming back to God for, for you, for me today, can't simply be words that we trot out and then just crack on living as though he's not there. We must wrestle with God like Jacob did and leave it changed. We must come to God with weeping, begging for his favor. Not because he's stingy. Not because God is reluctant to give us his favor. That couldn't be further from the truth. He yearns for us to come to him. He, like, a father, um, like the father in the story of the prodigal son, he stands watching from the window, wanting for us to come back, ready to embrace us. We don't need to, 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 to kind of weep and beg and wrestle like we see here because God's stingy. He will receive us graciously by grace as a gift, not based on what we've done, not based on the, the, the amount of emotion in our response at all. No, we wrestle, we, 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 we weep and we beg, not because God is reluctant, but because it's the sincere response of a person who has seen how desperate their situation is. When we realize how much we need God, we can't help but plead with him to receive us. And when we do, we can be utterly confident that we will receive restoration and forgiveness. Look at the next verse in chapter 14. Here's what God says to his people in verse 4. He says this, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from me. Now when the Israelites read that verse that would have been a confusing verse for them. They knew that God is just. They knew that God couldn't just pretend that their deceit, that their sin never happened. They knew that justice must be done otherwise God wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be good. How can God's anger be turned away from them? Where's it going to go? But we know the answer, don't we? 
God's anger could be turned away from them and God's anger can be turned away from us because justice will still be done. His anger will land on someone else. His anger will land on God the Son, Jesus. You see, around 800 years after Hosea, God turned his his anger away from us and put it on his own son. Jesus willingly chose to go to the cross and, and to bear and to have the full force of God's anger on his shoulders so that Jacob, so that the people of Israel, so that you and me could be forgiven from our deceit and our sin. The anger is turned from us and lands on him. That's how much God loves us. Jesus bore the consequence for us so that God can say to you, I will heal your waywardness and love you freely. For my anger has been turned away from you. That's how much he loves us. And then Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated death itself so that Hosea could say these words in chapter 13, verse 14. So that Hosea could say, this is um, God speaking, he says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? These words are picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, And he applies them through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus to us. Where, O death, is your victory, he says. Where, O death, is your sting? Jacob deserved God's anger. He deserved to die at the hands of Esau. Israel deserved God's anger. They deserved to be carried off to Assyria and forgotten about. We deserve God's anger. And we deserve death. But God, in his mercy, sent Jesus. Jesus took the anger on himself, he took death, and then he rose from the dead and defeated death itself, giving us forgiveness and life. Now we've heard many of the same things this afternoon that we've heard throughout the book of Hosea. I'm convinced that God knew what he was doing and that we needed to hear them again. But we can't just walk away from this. What are you going to do with these words from Hosea? Will you admit your sin? Will you come back to God, undeserving? Will you wrestle with him this afternoon? Will you ask Jesus to to take that anger, to take that death, so that you can freely receive his love, his forgiveness, his life? I'm just going to give us a a minute or two of silence just to let us uh, reflect on what God's been saying and maybe pray to him ourselves. So let me just give us a minute or two of silence and then I'll close.